0: Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. It is now 24 years since the British Labour Party stormed back to power to the sound of a song by the Irish-English rock band D Ream, Things Can Only Get Better. And for a while, they did.
1: We have been elected as New Labour
0: and we will govern as New Labour. Tony Blair's New Labour won re-election in 2001 with only a slight reduction on its huge majority and won again in 2005. Before its 13-year spell in power was ended by a victory for the Conservatives in 2010. Since then, things have not got better for Labour, they have only got worse.
1: Britain needs a Labour Party that can rebuild after this defeat so we can have a government... That stands up for working people again. This is obviously a very disappointing night for the Labour Party with the result that we've got.
0: For successive general election defeats and last week a humiliating by-election loss in Hartlepool that saw the party lose a seat it had held for almost 50 years have plunged Labour into what some see as an existential crisis. Hopes that the replacement of the radical left leader Jeremy Corbyn with the moderate Keir Starmer would return the party to its winning ways have proved to be, so far at least, unfounded. Well, I'm bitterly disappointed in the results. Um, And, you know, I take full responsibility. So where does Labour go from here? Dennis Staunton is our London editor and he is on the line. Dennis, just how much trouble is the Labour Party in?
1: It's in quite a bit of trouble. The trouble, the current bout of trouble, started last week with these elections that you mentioned, and uh, so there were a number of bad results. So Labour lost uh, the by election in Hartlepool. It lost more than three hundred council seats in England, and an awful lot of those were in the so-called red wall of these former Labour heartlands in the northeast and the Midlands of England. And then there were some. Bits of good news for Labour. They did very well in Wales and the uh, Welsh Government under Mark Drakeford. Uh, they increased their representation and equaled uh, Labour's best ever result in terms of seats there. In Scotland, Labour didn't really make any headway but in the south of England there were a number of successes in terms of taking some councils from uh, and council seats from uh, the Conservatives in some Conservative strongholds like in Oxfordshire and in West Sussex and then Labour did very well in a number of mayoral elections in uh, London, Sadiq Khan uh, won a second term uh, uh, on a better share of the vote than Boris Johnson ever got there and in uh, Manchester Andy Burnham won a second term with about two thirds of the vote and Labour also, uh, they won, uh, they they took from the Conservatives a mayoralty in the west of England. They didn't manage to take two other important mayoralties, one of the West Midlands around Birmingham and one in uh, Tees Valley. And in fact, in Tees Valley, the Conservative, Ben Houchen, won more than 70% of the votes. There was a real blowout up there. So these, uh, these election results were a kind of a mixed bag, but generally uh, they were disappointing. And the problem is that the, that the first results that came in, like the Hartlepool by-election, were among the most disappointing. So what the Labour leader, Keir Starmer, did then was that he really turned this drama into something of a crisis because uh, while the results, the better results for Labour were coming in over the weekend on Saturday afternoon, Keir Starmer uh, met his deputy leader, Angela Rayner, and he told her that he was going to sack her from two of her posts uh, as party chair and as uh, national campaign coordinator. Now, the deputy leader is like the leader elected directly by the membership, so he can't sack her as deputy leader. But uh, she interpreted this this move, which was apparently, according to Keir Starmer's people, a prelude to giving her a more front-facing role in, in the Shadow Cabinet. She took this as her being scapegoated for what was happening. So she went off and said, you're going to have to sort this out because I'm not accepting this. And uh, some uh, in the various camps suggest that some threats might have been made or that somebody suggested to Keir Starmer that if he didn't uh, you know, appease Angela Rayner, that she could challenge him or destroy his leadership or whatever. So anyway, then she went uh, home, she went to the pub apparently on Saturday night, and then she decided to have a lie-in on Sunday morning until around lunchtime. And stopped taking his
0: calls uh, is that right when she went, went to the pub
1: apparently so there were no calls being taken and left him to twist in the wind and eventually he then uh, you know came to, to this agreement with her which meant that she suddenly instead of losing two titles she suddenly had four titles a 24 word uh, job title which uh, you know which is so long I can't even go through it all now but uh, so and also uh, one of uh, Starmer's key aides, his parliamentary private secretary his eyes and ears in the parliament parliamentary party was sacked or she stepped aside and it looks like there may be further repercussions and what also happened was that this cabinet shadow cabinet reshuffle that he was planning uh, it ended up being much less ambitious than what he was hoping to go for so he emerged from all of this uh, weakened And with some questions about his uh, political judgment. And one of the things about Angela Rayner, she's an interesting person with an interesting personal biography. Uh, She left school without any qualifications at the age of 16 when she became pregnant. And uh, her mother never learned to read and write. She was brought up herself by a single mother. But then later, Angela Rayner went to uh, you know, adult education. She qualified as a social care worker. But she then became a trade union representative. And she has all of the skills of being a trade union negotiator. She also happens to be married to a trade union representative. So when uh, Keir was taking her on in a negotiation, he was taking on somebody who was quite formidable. And so anyway, the, the upshot of all of this is that she appears to be enhanced out of it. But cert- but uh, there are an awful lot of questions now circling about uh, Keir Starmer's political nous, And also even, is Keir Starmer really the person who can lead uh, the Labour Party back into government after the next general election?
0: So are the knives already out for Starmer or will he be given more time?
1: On, if you were to ask me sort of uh, the morning after the election on the Friday morning, I would have said, that, no, there are no real knives out. But now there are certainly, if the knives are not out, there, there are at least questions and there are more serious questions. And part of the problem is that uh, Keir Stammer, who was elected, as a unity candidate. He had promised to unify the party after Jeremy Corbyn. And he, uh, he ran on a kind of a leftish platform insofar as he was saying that the policies that Labour had espoused in the elections in 2017 and 2019, he didn't really want to deviate from them, from that sort of left social dem- democratic program, but that he was going to uh, make the leadership more competent He was going to bring more people together, and he was also going to uh, to clean up uh, the the party from things like the accusations of anti-Semitism among the Labour Labour membership. And so he went to work on some of that. But in the course of it, he quite early on alienated the left of the party, particularly through the suspension of the whip and the withdrawal of the whip from Jeremy Corbyn, uh, because Jeremy Corbyn uh, refused to apologise for a Facebook post which was about the, uh, the, the issue of anti semitism in the party. And so the left were already uh, unhappy with with, uh, with Keir Starmer and thought he was just heading over towards the right. What happened in recent months is that the right of the party started to complain about him as well. And they felt that he wasn't really being bold enough and that uh, he really needed to make a clean break with the uh, Corbynite left and with the Corbynite past and make it clear that this party really was, as he likes to put it, under new management. And so suddenly uh, all of these figures from the past started to emerge offering advice, among them Peter Mandelson. And Peter Mandelson uh, was up in Hartlepool. He's the former MP for Hartlepool. He was there a number of times campaigning. And in the aftermath, of the uh, Hartlepool by-election defeat, he went on a broadcast round where he went on the Today programme on Radio 4 and he said you had to look at Labour's last, uh, the, the outcome of the last 11 general elections Absolutely. where Labour was concerned. You know, the last 11 general elections read lose, 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 Blair, 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 lose, 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 lose. And he said you needed to look at what was what it was that made Tony Blair a winner and to start thinking about following that example. And then a couple of days later uh, this week, Tony Blair himself comes out with uh, his own blueprint uh, and his own diagnosis for exactly what's wrong with the Labour Party.
0: And that blueprint then it's emerged in the form of an essay by Blair in The New Statesman. He covered a lot of ground in that essay book. Could you give us a flavour of some of the arguments that he made in it?
1: Well, he said, first of all, that no political party had... The had a, had an entitlement to exist, and that if uh, Labour didn't completely change, uh, that it, it it would die. And he said that what he he was talking about was not just uh, tinkering at reform, but actually a complete reconstruction of the party. That so, in other words, a new party, in effect, rather like New Labour, was a kind of a new party. And he said that uh, you know uh, that that Jeremy Corbyn was radical but not sensible, and that it, the trouble with Keir Starmer was that he seemed to be. Uh, sensible but not radical and that uh, you know that instead of just trying to stick with this uh, kind of slightly uh, softened Corbynite program that Labour needed to embrace a whole new set of policies to look at policies about how you would deal with the technological changes that have happened in the world. But then he also suggested that Keir Stammer's Tactic or strategy of staying out of arguments on the culture wars, so arguments about things like flags and patriotism, and uh, you know hot button issues to do with gender, things like trans rights, and to do with race, and uh, you know that, that, that this was a mistake uh, by Keir, uh, on Keir Starmer's part, because Keir Starmer thought that the best thing is don't get dragged into this uh, by the conservatives because that's the terrain that they want to be fighting on. But uh, what, uh, what Tony Blair said is that. You know, often you just can't decide what the question is, You, but you have to work out your own answer. And if uh, the Labour leadership is not talking about these issues... Then the only people who are talking about these issues from the left are what Tony Blair called uh, the woke left. Now Tony Blair turned sixty-eight uh, last week, so that's a kind of an old person's way of speaking about uh, you know about about these issues. But he said that actually lots of people on the Labour side they feel uncomfortable with terms like woke and political correctness. But actually ordinary voters understand exactly what they're talking about, and they uh, you know and that ordinary voters don't like intolerance, but they want. Uh, Uh, common sense and they and so that they wanted essentially a a Labour Party that would take some kind of a a centrist moderate uh, approach to all of these issues.
0: He does make a a good case doesn't he Dennis that people on the moderate left if you like are almost afraid to engage in these so-called culture wars and issues of identity politics and so on and they're leaving the field to people on the extremes of the left and right.
1: He makes that case. I'm not sure it's a good case, but the case he's making is certainly that. I think the uh, the counter-argument is that actually these issues about uh, flags and statues and uh, trans rights, uh, you know, and uh, alleged threats to free speech on campus, that these are issues that get the right wing going, they get uh, you know a certain kind of uh, conservative target voter worked up, and the conservatives are very comfortable in this terrain. Whereas for most people on the left, there are certainly some people uh, for who you know, on the left who care passionately about these issues, as uh, you know, for example, in terms of trans rights as being human rights issues, uh, but uh, you know, and, and likewise in terms of, uh, of of racial and issues of ethnic. Uh, uh, fairness and uh, racial fairness—that—that that I think that you know there are certainly a lot of people, or a certain number of people on the left who care passionately about it, but most voters are not really terribly uh, affected by these things, and there's you know there isn't a huge salience about them, and I do think that uh, there is a danger for Labour. If they do get dragged too far into these kinds of debates, that uh, you know, uh, that, that they will be associated to, you know, with uh, you know with a kind of a caricature of whatever a left position is on some of these issues, and at the same time, there's a danger that if they follow uh, Tony Blair's advice, that uh, Labour will uh, will in effect try to distance itself from some of its own supporters, and I think if you look, for example, north of the border, there is a. Successful social democratic party in Britain, and that is the Scottish National Party. And Nicola Sturgeon's critics uh, who uh, oppose trans rights, for example, they complain that the reason she's so enthusiastic about extending the rights of of transgender people is because she wants to curry favour with the younger voters. And uh, if Nicola Sturgeon wants to curry favour with the younger voters, then it's probably worth carrying favour with them, I'd say. Or at least, you know, you shouldn't d- dismiss the idea. And again, if you start to look at possible coalitions, because if you think about the, uh, the electoral system in Britain, it's rather like the... It's very similar to the one in the US, and it's not like the one in Ireland or in the rest of Europe. Insofar as, uh, you know, what it does is that you create uh, these broad coalitions, and then what you try to do is to get to a kind of a plurality of maybe 40%, 40-something percent. And you then turn that plurality through the voting system into a parliamentary majority. And uh, you know, and what's happened in the last few years is that Labour has lost two parts of its electoral coalition, and one of those is uh, Scotland because Scotland stopped voting for Labour, and the other then is these red wall pro Brexit voters. But at the same time, there are signs that the, uh, the Conservatives are losing uh, some votes among. People more educated, younger people in the south of England, and uh, and at the same time, Labour is in danger of losing voters, uh, you know, particularly liberal left voters to the Greens, who did very well in uh, last week's election. And for example, emerges the biggest party in Bristol, and you know, and so so there's so so Labour needs to be careful. I think about following. Tony Blair's advice on these culture wars, but certainly there's, you know, it's it's an argument that he he makes well, and it's an argument that will uh, that will fall on um, on willing ears in some parts of the party.
0: He also makes an argument in the piece that we're we're living through a technological revolution, the like of which you know we haven't seen since the industrial revolution, or it's the biggest transformation in society since the industrial revolution. And he argues the big political challenge of today is how to harness that revolution for the public good, and in his view. He says the radical left doesn't get this and they're still focused on less relevant issues such as public ownership and and big government. Um, do you think he makes a good argument there?
1: Yeah, I mean I think certainly that uh, you know uh, you know I think it's he's absolutely right that these are the great changes that are happening. I think what the, uh, you know what, what the left would say is that actually in uh, 2017 particularly the uh, Jeremy Corbyn's policy platform was actually very popular. The individual policies that they were espousing in 2019 were popular as well according to pollsters. The problem is That by then, the messenger was so tarnished, both uh, Jeremy Corbyn himself and the Labour Party more generally, that uh, people didn't really uh, believe what they were saying about all these things they were going to do. Like, for example, one of the Labour proposals that was sneered at hugely in 2019 was to roll out free broadband all over the country and i think now after the experience of the pandemic and the idea that people might want to work from home more than they have before and the whole business of of school children having to do to try to to to, to learn remotely uh, that i think you know the gap in broadband delivery is very clear and so now this particular policy of uh, universal free broadband would seem like actually uh, something of a no-brainer so i think that you know that uh, I think that that particular argument to say they should be focusing on uh, on the changes in technology, I think is you know that, that's something that uh, I think a lot of people in the party would agree with. I think in a way part of the problem though is that when he starts to uh, you know to go through at the beginning of his piece, he starts to talk about how you know Labour is, shares the same problem that social democratic parties all over Europe are sharing. You see with with the French socialists, you see with the social democrats in Germany, and then he mentions Joe Biden and he says, but I. I think we'd be foolish to uh, put too much uh, store by the Biden victory it was really just a one off and it was a fluke because of Donald Trump very unusual politician well Boris Johnson is a very unusual politician and you know, the uh, the upside of Boris Johnson is what we saw last week. And so when times are good, like with the vaccine rollout, there's no more persuasive uh, you know, carnival barker in a way to tell you how great things are going. The trouble is, as we saw last year during the worst part of the pandemic, he's a prime minister who's not built for bad times. And uh, so in a sense, he's a similar kind of a politician to Donald Trump. And the problem for Tony Blair is that if you look at the experience of Joe Biden. Joe Biden got elected uh, by building a coalition which included supporters of black lives matter and of trans rights and it, it included uh, conservative socially conservative older black voters and trade unionists and parts of the white working class and he managed just through a process of addition to get this uh, you know across the line but he also if you remember uh, he uh, essentially ran on a joint platform he negotiated a joint platform with Bernie Sanders and so the policies that he is uh, introducing are policies, which are by American standards particularly very, very radical and uh, you know and transformative, and so in a sense, the boldness of Biden. And the fact that Biden respected all of these elements of of his coalition, including people who always vote for the Democratic Party. Uh, it kind of contradicts the Tony Blair and generally the right wing Labour view, which is that the people uh, who vote for you already, like people who live in the south of England, uh, people who work in the public services, uh, you know, uh, people of color or whatever ethnic minorities that that those uh, that those people you should kind of take for granted and that you you ought to really just go and focus on chasing these red wall voters that's not what joe biden did and so i think the you know the strongest argument against what tony blair is arguing is the experience and the success of joe biden
0: And on that question of popular policies, uh, Dennis, this week's Queen's Speech, which is, you know, the ritual by which the the government of the day sets out its policy programme, it had quite a few popular elements that would appeal to a a traditional Labour voter, such as spending on transport and and added education and so on. Have have the Conservatives simply become better than Labour at identifying things that people want?
1: I think they certainly have. I think the other thing, the other advantage that the Conservatives and Conservative parties more generally have is that they're much more uh, willing to abandon uh, central tenets of their political beliefs. So, for example, if you look at uh, you know the Conservative Party, Margaret Thatcher's Conservative Party, and many of the people who are uh, in senior positions in the current Conservative government, they espoused a really uh, radical uh, economic liberalism, which would have uh, let the market Uh, decide everything they're now embracing this very high public spending uh, a central role for the state in industrial policy and authoritarian policies where personal liberties are concerned which you saw during the uh, the pandemic but which they're also quite keen on uh, you know even uh, after the pandemic is over and so uh, so they've been able to abandon those rather in the way that you saw the republican party under Donald Trump, abandoning an awful lot of its uh, liberalism on the issues like trade. And they did it for, uh, you know, because they wanted to stay in power and they wanted to win elections. Uh, the Labour Party finds it more difficult to do that. You could argue that it actually did that when, under Tony Blair. And that uh, there, it actually was prepared to abandon, for example, its uh, objection to people, as uh, Peter Matheson put it, getting filthy rich. And he said he was intensely relaxed about that. But uh, and so there were things like that that, that where they changed, and the, you know they ab- abolished uh, Clause Four, which uh, you know promised to put um, the means of production under public ownership. And so uh, so they they did abandon a certain amount there. But Labour does find it more difficult to do that than mm-hmm. the Conservatives do. And so for now, the Conservatives are happy to be a party which is spending more on public services and uh, at the same time doing all kinds of other Popular things like authoritarian things, like for example, saying that uh, people claiming asylum can just be summarily rejected if they came through illegally uh, and that if they enter the country illegally, even if they're granted asylum, they can be refused leave to remain in the country and so, uh, you know, so there are all kinds of um, of you know, there's a kind of a, a whole menu of policies which are all pretty popular uh, among a broad section of the electorate and then you have other issues which are more difficult like say how do you fund uh, the care of older people or social care more generally and they've kicked that off into the um, uh, you know into the future some somewhere rather as they have the issue of how do you deal with the legacy of the trouble of northern of the troubles in northern ireland so the the strategy for the moment seems to be take lots of popular decisions and postpone difficult ones for as long as you can.
0: And just to recap briefly on Blair's essay, um, Dennis, do you think it will have any effect? Will, will anybody listen to him?
1: I think it will. I mean, I think, it, I think the thing is that I think it, it will have two effects. One is to further destabilise uh, Keir Starmer because it's really directly critical of Keir Starmer, basically saying that he's, he doesn't seem to be uh, quite cutting the mustard. And so I think that, you know, it will embolden those critics of Starmer on the right, it will uh, then uh, increase probably suspicions on the left that that's actually the direction that Starmer will go in. And uh, so I think that it might you know make a difference in that respect. I think that in a way, Starmer was heading in that direction Policy direction in any case, Uh, not necessarily on the culture war stuff, but on other matters. So, if you know, look, the the only part of his uh, reshuffle that he really managed to achieve was that he replaced Annalisa Dodds as Shadow Chancellor of the Exchequer with Rachel Reeves, who's a, you know, who is a more impressive and punchier performer, but she is also very much on the right of the party. And he had wanted to bring in uh, some other figures from the right of the party and put them into, into key positions but you know his hand was stayed because of the whole row with Angela Rayner and so I think that you know it's the direction that Starmer seems to be thinking of in any case but uh, you know whether he's actually going to be able to do that now that he's lost authority or not is another question.
0: But that losing record that Peter Mandelson alluded to um, I mean that can't kind of was there before Tony Blair and continued after him. We've had Gordon Brown, Ed Miliband, Jeremy Corbyn, Keir Starmer, possibly now moving on to a fifth uh, leader. It indicates that leadership is not really the issue, that the party has deeper problems than that, does it?
1: I think it does. I think it also uh, tells you just that this uh, is a centre-right country, Britain is a centre-right country, as indeed, for example, is Germany. If you look at, uh, at Germany. Germany had one social democratic chancellor since 1980, and before that it had two, and uh, since the Second World War. So Gerhard Schroeder was the only uh, uh, social democratic chancellor since uh, Helmut Schmidt, who left office in 1980. And so it is, you know, uh, it, generally speaking, these places are structurally centre-right, and you then have to, uh, you know, construct a better uh, and, a, and a more efficient coalition, you have to try to unite the left a bit more or coordinate it at least uh, in a way that. Because, I mean, if you look at, say, one of the successes of Boris Johnson, and again, this is a question just of adding up the numbers, what he has succeeded in doing with Brexit is uniting the right wing vote. It started to splinter with UKIP. And uh, and so he has brought all of this UKIP, Brexit Party, Farage's vote in under the Conservative tent. And he, at the same time, he hasn't lost too many of the traditional Conservative voters. And so, uh, you know, uh, so I think that in a way it's hard for Labour to win. Uh, but it's probably better for Labour to think in terms of uh, adding elements of uh, of voters, voter groups, rather than, say, trying to sort of turn against uh, some of its own core voters, say, uh, who are younger or more liberal or in the south of the country, just for the sake of trying to, uh, to win over voters that they might not uh, be able to win over anyway, and I think even for example, if you look at the voters in the in the so-called Red Wall, there are two categories in a way of former Labour voters. One is much older people who, when you ask them, when they you know they'll tell you they voted Labour all their lives and they're now voting Conservative. And then you ask them who they voted for in the uh, twenty nineteen election, and they'll uh, tell you, oh, well, they voted for Boris then, and in the one before that, they voted for the uh, UKIP or the Brexit Party, or you know. So you actually have to go back quite a bit before you find the last time they actually voted for Labour. And they are certainly uh, on the right where culture wars are concerned and they're probably not coming back. But there's, there's another element of people who are aspirational, who uh, have you know uh, moderately well-paying jobs, uh, but the wages are not very high by London standards. But nonetheless, on those wages, they can afford to have bought a nice house. So home ownership has gone way up in those parts of the country. They've got a decent enough car. They've got a reasonable standard standard of living and they are aspirational and they don't feel like victims of the economic system. But at the same time, things like good quality public services, you know, really good state schools, they're not going to send their kids to private school. They're not going you know, they, they want good hospitals, good schools. They want good infrastructure. They want all these things that the state can provide. Those voters at the moment, many of them are voting conservative, but they're not necessarily gone forever. And so I I think, you know, to uh, write off the Labour Party is perhaps too soon. And of course, the other, the old truism is that uh, oppositions don't win elections, governments lose them. And uh, this government under Boris Johnson has had a good... Uh, few months with the vaccine rollout but the previous few months before that were very very poor and it has certainly not shown itself to be very good at governing
0: Am I right Dennis in thinking and you can correct me if I'm wrong that one of the differences between Labour and one of the the particular difficulties the Labour Party has in comparison to other centre-left and social parties across Europe is that Labour is particularly sort of split down the middle between its hard left faction, the, the Corbynites, as they're called today, and its more moderate
1: faction. Yeah, you could also call that left or and right. But the thing is that uh, one of the reasons for that is that because of the voting system, it's much more like the Democratic Party. It has to be a very broad coalition. What happens in Europe is when uh, parties start to get too divided, they split. And uh, we've seen that in Ireland as well, and you, and so so you'll have, for example, in uh, in Germany, uh, if you look at the kind of people who would be in the Labour Party in Britain, they are split amongst uh, the the Linke, the left party, which is uh, the the sort of far left party, the Social Democrats, and the Greens. Many of the Greens would be uh, people who in britain would probably be uh, perhaps not in the green party but maybe in the labour party so in the same way in france you've got a number of uh, you know different parties uh, you know from the far left into the centre and there because of the voting system you can afford to split up a bit likewise in scotland you can do it in the scottish voting system and uh, and the problem is that uh, with the first past the post system there is no way to gain power unless you are a big party. And that means you have to be a broad church. And that means it's a difficult party to manage.
0: So where do you see Labour going then in the immediate future, Dennis? Do you think it has the wherewithal to overcome these challenges?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, uh, you know, if they, uh, you know, they can, you know, in politics, you can have uh, some very bad weeks followed by a few very good ones. And then, uh, you know, suddenly, uh, you know, the polls start to look different. And if you look at last year, Keir Stammer was way ahead of, uh, of Boris Johnson. Labour was ahead of the Conservatives even for a little bit. And for a long time, they were kind of level pegging. I think that Rachel Reeves as Shadow Chancellor is going to be uh, a pretty powerful performer. Keir Stammer does have his, uh, his strengths uh, in the House of Commons. And I think what they need to do probably, though, is to focus on somehow getting their internal uh, relations ships in order. And then they also, are, you know, he's, he's started this policy review. And they probably do now start to need, you know, need to start telling people what exactly they would do. And so they've been having throughout the pandemic, this kind of constructive opposition, which hasn't been in some ways, it hasn't been quite constructive enough. It's been a bit grudging. And it's also hasn't been quite oppositional enough. Now that we're getting out of the uh, pandemic, we hope, then normal politics might resume and they might just have a better chance of, um, you know, of, uh, of asserting themselves really as uh, as an opposition party. That's at least the only option they, you know, that they have. I think the other thing is that, you know, for the next few months, you're likely to have pretty good news for the Conservative Party because we're emerging from lockdown. And I think things are going to, to be looking quite good for, uh, throughout the summer. In the autumn, uh, the further scheme ends and a lot of support for business, businesses go. And I think then uh, the picture may not look quite so rosy. And uh, at that stage, once again, the opposition might have a better chance to, uh, you know, to get a hearing from the public than it is now.
0: Dennis, thank you for that. And that's all for this week. For more on this and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.